You're listening to the Fresh Hell Podcast. Fresh Hell contains stories of a disturbing and often graphic nature and is intended for a mature audience. Please don't let your kids listen to this, or they might turn out like us. Hi, I'm Barney Black. And I'm Tara Saravan. And we do Bloody Murder. We're a weekly true crime podcast that focuses on some of the lesser known crime stories from Australia. And indeed around the globe. We're a comedy podcast with a dark sense of humour. But we're dead serious about murder and the people it affects. We find humour in some unexpected places. But never at the expense of the victims or their families. We've been described as the blue cheese of podcasting. Addictive, strong and satisfying. And a bit stinky. I am not. You know you are. Bloody Murder. Murder is available on your favorite podcatcher. Hi and welcome. You're listening to the Fresh Hell Podcast. This is Annie. And I'm Johanna. And you just heard Tara and Barney from Bloody Murder Podcast. And I think this is the first Australian-based true crime podcast that we recommend to you. So I'd say please go and check them out. They really do a great job. And I personally heard a lot of new cases that I that I didn't know before. Yeah, I agree. They're great. And the accents. I love the accents. We have a fair amount of listeners in Australia, right? Yeah, that's right. Most of our Australian listeners come from New South Wales and Victoria, which I think is kind of fitting for us. Yeah. <laughs> but you know what's weird? So far, we never had anybody from the Northern Territory listen to us. Not one single person. So I don't know what's up, people of Darwin and, and Alice Springs. I'm sorry, that's the only two places I know that aren't in the, in the Northern Territory. <laughs> have you been there? Not there, but I have been to Sydney and Melbourne like many, many, many times and... I love those cities. Like, Manly Beach is amazing. Annie, we have to go there. Oh, I, you know, I really want to go there. The closest I've been is when I saw Hugh Jackman's tour. He walked into the audience and he stood literally talking to the guy behind me. So he dripped sweat on me for like a good three minutes. So I've been sweat <laughs> upon by Hugh Jackman. It was pretty awesome. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> Enough of you, Jackman. Now let's talk about the freshest tale. What do you have for us today, Annie? All right. Well, today I am going to tell you all about the Hammersmith ghost murder. So I don't think you know this one. It's a little bit obscure. You ready? I'm ready. I'm all buckled in. Okay, good. Come back with me in time. Picture it. England, 1803. Mad King George III is on the throne. And to be fair, he's got a lot going on. He's got a wife who he first met on his wedding day, which seems to have actually gone pretty well since they had like 15 kids. Well, I mean, they didn't have Netflix back then. So what else was there to do? That is a fair point. Yeah. So he's just lost the American colonies and they've just doubled in size after buying Louisiana. So that had to hurt. And England is ramping up for a major invasion by your boyfriend, Napoleon. So, interestingly, if our listeners remember our Victorian episode, then uh, they will know how bad arsenic was. And one of the leading theories as to King George's mental health struggles later in life is arsenic. So, apparently, they tested a lock of his hair, and it was just 85% arsenic and, like, 15% hair. It was it was a lot of arsenic in that hair. And so, that combined with a probable case of porphyria, which is a whole complicated group of disease processes, the most well-known... Uh, of porphyria is when people can't go into the sun at all. We might get into that in future episodes, but that's all you need to know about King George for now. 
Back to our story. It takes place in Hammersmith, which was more of a Western suburb at the time and wouldn't become part of London until 1889. So when this story takes place, it's just this charming town to the West of London. There's a church and shops and of course some pubs. I've got some engravings that I can show you, which we will post on all of the socials. So winter is coming and it's cold. So that's a new hassle. But on the plus side, the shitty streets smell a little bit less whiffy when it's cold outside. Always got to look for that bright side. But it's been, you know, it's been a little bit of a stressful year in terms of Napoleon invading. And so there's probably, and I think it's reasonable to assume, I think, some general anxiety about that. Which can I just say, as someone who has anxiety, I just sometimes wonder how much worse it would have been a few hundred years ago. I mean, I can't even imagine how how bad, like how much of a fucking nightmare I would be if every time one of my nieces or nephews or a husband skinned a knee or got a splinter, I'd be (laughs) certain it was sepsis and every cough was, oh, it's consumption and every morsel of iffy fish was for sure cholera. I just, I'd be, I'd actually, I'd be fine. I'd be fucking sipping on opium all day and talking to my dog. So never mind. We're good. I mean, I don't know. Maybe you would be so super busy trying, you know, not to die of consumption and brain fever that you wouldn't have any time to to think about. You know what? You're right. Anything. You're right. Thank you. Thank you. I absolutely would have died too young to have nieces or nephews. <laughs> I feel better about that now. All right. But yeah, I mean, you get it, right? It's anxious, super anxious time to be alive. So, so unlike today where everything is fucking easy street. You know, it was, it was, it was a... It was an anxious time. And so things aren't helped when early that November, there is some spooky fuckery happening around the otherwise quaint town of Hammersmith. Well, okay, so as it is October right now, that means we are all here for the spooky fuckery. (laughs) So tell me everything. It sounds so much better when you say it. Oh, (laughs) I love your accent. So, well, it seemed like the town was under attack by a ghost, and lots of people in the Hammersmith area were claiming to have seen or have been attacked by a ghost. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Great ghosts. Yeah, I love ghosts. Not. But let's uh, look at it scientifically. Who was that ghost? What did he want? What do we know? Okay, so this part is definitely legend. Apparently, a young man, whose name we don't know, had tragically died by suicide the year before, on an unknown date, by cutting his own throat for unknown reasons. And so, he sadly dies and is then buried in the churchyard. But there's a problem. Just one? (laughs) (laughs) Let's talk about the first one. The big one, yeah. Let's cross that off the list. Victims of suicide aren't buried in churchyard at the time. Yeah. At least not if you're Catholic, but I assume it's it's the same for Anglicans, right? Yeah, you bet. Because Anglicans, it's just like Catholics, but you can get divorced and you can marry. <laughs> That's basically it, right? Like Henry VIII was like, listen, I'm a good Catholic, but also... He was such a good Catholic. He was actually a fascinating guy. I would, You could do a whole episode on him, but... Oh, yeah. And we will one of these days. But yeah, so absolutely right. You know, I looked this up just to make sure I had all my facts right. At that time, a suicide would not have been buried in consecrated ground because it was a great sin to die by suicide, which we just discussed. But it was also, again, the law. So if you uh, survived a suicide attempt, you'd then be arrested and maybe thrown in jail, which is, it's just beyond, isn't it? I mean, honestly, it's, it's horrific. It definitely wouldn't help your mental health. It's a bummer. Such a bummer. And I'm tempted to go on a rant about mental health in our current prison system, but 
I shan't. So our story happens, as I said, in late 1803, early 1804. And so burial in consecrated ground was only permitted after 1823 if you wanted to just bury someone quickly without a funeral. But if you wanted them to be buried with all of the proper funeral rituals, that was only possible after the Burial Act of 1880. So when this all happened, the common belief was that if you buried someone who had died by suicide in consecrated ground, then they would not rest in peace, and that is how you make a ghost. Ah, that's how you make a mm-hmm. ghost. I always thought that, you know, either you have to build your house on an old Native American graveyard, yep. or if you are in Europe, you have to push an unfaithful wife into a well. Yes, 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 yes. Those are ways. There are many ways. I have a list somewhere. But in this case, it's the old consecrated ground issue. So people are reporting seeing this ghost, and it's described in a few different ways. And Johanna, I know you're afraid of ghosts, and so I'm going to try to make this as unscary as possible as I describe it to you, okay? I'm ready. Right. The first kind of ghost was described to be like a tall man with a white sheet over him. Scooby-Doo-style <laughs> ghost. Ooh, it's spooky. He's so tall and very white. Like, you know the sort. Okay, did he say something about meddling kids? He did, yes. And it was an iambic pentameter. So <laughs> the second description of the ghost, and this one is just weird. I don't get this. So the second description included calfskin, hooves, and giant horns, and having staring glass eyes. And I don't get it, but to be honest, I don't want to come across someone wearing this in the dark, even though it's probably just the shittiest costume ever. That one is not scary at all because they just simply encountered the Krampus. Oh, shit, you're right. That ghost went full on Krampus. I thought maybe there was just like, maybe like there was a stray healing coup about, like taunting <laughs> folks with his enormous horns. But um, you're right. I think someone was fucking Krampusing. What an asshole. I have to say, I hate this guy. He's the reason for yet more severe childhood trauma, like our fairy tales. And to this day, I swear to God, I don't like to go outside on Krampus Day after dark. But I say, let's keep this for December. We're going to talk about this later on. Oh, yeah. We have so many terrible things to scare you with in December, Hellions. We're looking forward to Christmas horrors. So anyhow, the third uh, and final description of the ghost seemed to be just like a white, luminous, glowing man. Okay, so now let's talk about the alleged victims of this ghost, because there were quite a few, and actually one of them makes me think there might have been more than one person dressing up like a ghost to scare people, and we'll get into that a little bit more later. So uh, let's talk about some of the alleged victims, and I say alleged because there are plenty of sources that are repeating the same story, but with very few facts like actual names and dates. So it's a little problematic. But let me read you this account from the London Morning Post, dated January 1804. This attack upon the credulity of the inhabitants of the Hammersmith and Turnham Green has, for upwards of two months, excited so much alarm that every superstitious person in that neighborhood has been filled with the most fearful apprehensions. So terror-struck are the minds of the women and children that not one will venture over the threshold after five o'clock in the evening. And indeed, if we may credit public report, this ghost is a most mischievous spirit. Among his pranks, breaking windows, and even maiming some of the inhabitants are mentioned. The following Uh, fact will best 
exemplify how far he is a welcome guest. On the 15th of December last, about 10 in the evening, some servants belonging to a brew house in the neighborhood were returning with a friend from the outskirts into the town when they were met by the ghost dressed in what they described to resemble the hide of a calf with a pair of enormously large horns and cloven feet, end quote. Yep, yep. That's oh, you're so right. This is why it's so nice. It's so fun doing this with someone from another country and another culture because I honestly would never have made the Krampus connection. So that's awesome. All right. So this article continues, quote, The men, not altogether liking the appearance of the intruder, turned about and ran off. But the ghost was too nimble for the drayman, whom he overtook, seized him by the throat, and nearly choked him. The fright, together with the ill usage, threw the poor fellow into a fever, from which he has but very lately recovered. About a week since, the driver of one of the stages was proceeding down the lane when he was alarmed by hearing an uncommon rustling noise. By a faint light from the moon, he describes to be a strange creature dressed in white gliding over an adjacent meadow. The phantom approached very near him. The coachman was too much frightened to investigate the business any further. He got off his box and ran back to the town where he alarmed all whom he met by mentioning the circumstance. About a dozen stout fellows proceeded to the spot where the coach and horses were left and found the traces cut and the horses grazing in an adjacent field. End quote. It goes on a bit, but you get the idea. Does that all make sense? I had to read it twice to myself. So now there are other accounts, though, and this is one I think we'll agree this is the really problematic one. Well, yeah, this is the problematic one. Big thanks to British History Online for Edward Walford's Hammersmith in Old and New London, Volume 6, which I think was published in the late 1800s. It's, it's in my sources. Here's the quote from that. Quote, this sham ghost had certainly much to answer for. One poor woman, while crossing near the churchyard about 10 o'clock at night, beheld something, as she described it, rise from the tombstones. The figure was very tall and very white. She attempted to run, but the supposed ghost soon overtook her, and pressing her in his arms, she fainted, in which situation she remained some hours until discovered by her the neighbors, who kindly led her home when she took to her bed and died two days afterwards. End quote. That sounds bad. Like a guy attacking women and doing Lord knows what to them. Yep. Agreed. Totally agree. And we'll talk a little bit more about that later. There are other accounts of older women being frightened to death and another of a pregnant woman who went into premature labor, but she and her baby both passed away. To be fair, though, losing mother and baby at that time, I mean, it wasn't quite 50-50 in terms of your chances of mortality, but it really wasn't that far off. But, you know, you get the picture. This ghost was a problem. People were frightened and people were being injured, apparently. I guess at one point, another stagecoach driver was startled by it and all 16 of the passengers were injured. That must have been a really big coach. Was anybody injured badly? I'm going to assume not because I've seen this mentioned in quite a few of these articles, but papers were pretty graphic back then. And I think if it had been serious, we'd have known. You know what I mean? I think they were just mm. shaken up. So it's hard to know. And also there was not really much they could do about it because there wasn't a police force in London. That wouldn't come along for another 25 years or so with Robert Peel in 1829. But there was a night watchman and his name was William Girdler. So now it's December 29th, 1803, and he's doing his usual rounds when, oh my God, there it is. He sees the ghost right near Beaver Lane and he gives chase. Finally, 
we're going to catch a ghost. And so he's chasing the ghost and he's gaining on it and he's almost there. And then suddenly the ghost throws off its burial shroud or tablecloth or sheet or whatever it is that's hampering his escape and he gets away. Now, he tells this story to some men at the pub, as you do. And they're all really fed up with all this ghosty bullshit, right? Because it's now, this has been going on for a few months now, and everyone's just fucking had it. And so they form this sort of neighborhood watch. And this group of men, they're all together sitting at the Black Lion Pub, which is still there. And they decide that they're going to find this ghost and stop it one way or another. And so they start a sort of neighborhood watch of armed patrols of the town. Great. Good. Yeah. So, this nightly patrol is now happening, but there are a lot of alleys and lanes and, like, little, you know how it was before, and you know, in the olden days. Lots of little ways to move about in the dark. Because remember, this is all way, way before electricity, so nighttime was dark. But, upside, you know, I bet they had the best night skies. Can you see the stars where you are? No, unfortunately not. I wish. It's really hard here. On the Cape, it's pretty good, but where we live, it's too much light pollution from Boston. All right. So it's January 3rd now, 1804. And so this watch has been going on for, you know, around a week or so. And it's a little after 10 p.m. when Thomas Millwood, he's a 32-year-old plasterer or bricklayer, depending on which account you read. He stops by at his parents' house on Black Lion Lane. I had read some testimony from the trial uh, to come later at the Old Bailey. But I think he was basically just hanging out with his family, either waiting for his wife to get off work nearby so they could walk home together, or maybe it's a special because there's some nitwit in a tablecloth running around scaring people, or it could be their normal routine. Who can say? It doesn't really matter. So Thomas and his sister Anne hear the night watch called at 11, and she's like, oh, you better go collect your wife. Off you go. And so he leaves. And do you know what he's wearing? Let me guess, uh, was he wearing white? Yes, head to toe in bright white. And he's annoyed because for months, people have been like, oh, hey, Thomas, listen, maybe don't wear all that white. People could think you're a ghost. And his mother-in-law apparently was like, uh, listen, throw your great coat on because... People are going to think you're a ghost, and we'll get into a little bit more of that later, but he wasn't having any of it. He was just, I think he was seriously fed up with all of this ghost nonsense. Sorry for interrupting, but wow, he must have been a really impractical man, like wearing all white is already high maintenance nowadays, <laughs> but yikes, back then, his wife must have been so happy to keep his clothes clean all the time. <laughs> My sister, a fully formed ad adult human, doesn't buy anything white. It's like if she wears a brand new white shirt like a child carrying a popsicle will fling it at her or something it's like she can't do it she has the worst luck with white it's it's unbelievable but in this case you know i don't think he had a choice i think this was probably the traditional working clothes of his trade and so like how spotless his clothes were would show how carefully he did his work right same with chefs and painters all people who wear all white and really probably shouldn't It's just, look how well I do my job. My clothes are fucking spotless. Like, you know, one of the things we waste too much time on in life. Yeah. So he leaves his parents' house. 
He's walking along Black Lion Lane toward home. And meanwhile, the neighborhood watch is out doing their thing. And one of the people involved in this is a man named Francis Smith. And he's a 29-year-old excise officer. Excise officers at that time uh, were sort of like customs officials. And so he's known as a really nice, kind of quiet guy. Everybody really likes him. Smith heads out. He ain't afraid no ghost. He is going to try to find one. Plus, he's been drinking at the pub with his friends all night. So, you know. He's got that liquid courage. He's got his beer goggles on. And he, he runs into the night watchman, William Girdler. Shows him his rifle that he uses for bird hunting and says he's going to go patrolling for ghosts. And Girdler's like, great, I'm going to find you once I'm off work and I'll help you. Everyone's trying to pitch in and de-ghost that neighborhood. So... Francis Smith, he's walking around the dark streets of Hammersmith with his gun. He can probably feel the chilly breeze coming off the nearby River Thames when suddenly, oh, what's that Smith sees? It's a white figure, and it's getting closer to him down the dark, dark lane. And Smith calls out, identify yourself, damn you, but there's no reply. And so he demands that whatever this vision of white is must identify itself. But again, there's no answer. And when it keeps approaching, Francis Smith fires his gun, the white figure collapses, and he is overjoyed. He has got the ghost. Oh, has he now? Nope. So <laughs> what really happened, and this is awful, is as plasterer Thomas Millwood leaves his family home toward his own to meet up with his wife, it's late. He's tired, and suddenly some guy he can't really even see is swearing at him and demanding to know who he is. So he kind of ignores him, and the last thing he sees is a flash of light from the gun before a bullet enters his jaw, severs his spinal cord right at the brainstem, and kills him instantly. So, awful. Once Smith approaches the ghost and realizes it's a man in work clothes, he is absolutely horrified, and he runs for help. We actually have Thomas's sister Anne's account of that evening, thanks to the old Bailey for having uh, some of these court testimonies online. I will link to it as I am going to trim her full testimony so it's just a little bit more concise. So this is Anne's testimony. Quote, Between 10 and 11 o'clock, my brother came to my father's house. My mother and I were just going to bed when he came in. He said, Mother, are you going to bed? I made answer, Yes. Thomas, is your wife come home? He said, no, she will not be home for half an hour. I said, will you come in and I will sit with you? He came in and I sat with him. We talked a considerable time till my mother fell asleep. While my brother was sitting, I heard the watchman crying past 11 o'clock. I told my brother, you had better go. It is dangerous for your wife to come home by herself. He jumped up and said, I will go. He bid my mother and me good night and went out of the door and shut it. As soon as he was gone, I jumped up and went to the door. As soon as I got to the door, I heard a voice say, damn you, who are you? And what are you? Damn you, I will shoot you. And while they were speaking, the gun went off and I saw the flash of fire from the gun. I went from the door and called Thomas as loud as I could three or four times but nobody answered. I went into my mother and I said, I do think my brother is shot. I did not stay for an answer, but went up to get my father who was in bed and said, do get up for my brother is shot, but he would not believe me. And then I went into a room adjoining and awakened another young man. He would not believe me neither. I 
No idea who this guy is. I went to the window and called Thomas as loud as I could call. At last I said, well, if no one will believe me, I will go myself. I ran out the door, and when I had got halfway from my father's house to my brother's, I saw my brother laying dead at the gate. I took a hold of his right hand and said, speak to me. But he could not, for he was quite dead. His head was laying toward me as I went up to him. End quote. Well, that's not good. No, it's awful. It's awful. And it's reading her to her testimony. I find it a little bit hilarious just because it seems like what it's, it's the propriety, right? It seems like it's what we said in what episode was that uh, in the um, Clara Harris. Oh, yeah. Where we said the quotes are so, yeah. so weird. It just, yeah, it's awful. All right. So it's, yeah, it's awful. So. I'm sure she was yelling and running and not just like exactly. Said, do, and do I was get like, up, do, do father, please do get up. That's the thing that I find so strange. It's like how you would imagine. It's like, oh, they've replaced my sister with a robot. You know what I mean? It's like <laughs> that's what it makes me feel like. It seems like it's like the way they should be acting. It's like in Westworld. It's like um, the Stepford. Yes, Stepford. the totally Stepford. Stepford sister. It's like, and this poor girl, it's like, mom, they've shot my brother, get up. And she's like, he's but fine. But maybe she was really acting like that, and that's why nobody believed her. I mean, maybe she was just like, I'm calm under pressure, but maybe this bitch was like, calm under pressure. I don't know, but it's awful. It really is awful. And so she testifies that she's alone and there's no one else there but her and her dead brother. And so she runs to the neighbors, uh, Mrs. Wells, for help. In the meantime, our shooter, Francis Smith, he finds a man by the name of John Locke, <laughs> I know, who is a local wine merchant. Francis is very upset and explains that he's afraid he's killed a man and he would like John to come with him back to where this all went down. On the way back, they meet up with the night watchman girdler and there are a few other local men, and they all explain what's happened. They get back to the body of Thomas, and then Anne comes back, who has come back out of the neighbor's house, yeah? So the men carry Thomas's body to the Black Lion Inn, and the surgeon is summoned. Francis Smith is a mess. He feels absolutely terrible. And so Girdler tells him to go home, and he then goes ahead and summons the constable, because he's like, this shit is way above my pay grade, phoning it in with a horse. So then the surgeon arrives and he confirms it was in fact one shot through the jaw into the spinal cord and thankfully death would have been instant. So this happened on January 3rd, right? Mm -hmm. And the articles in the paper say that the surgeon, a man by the name of Flowers, examined Thomas on January the 6th. So it sounds like the body was just at the pub for a few days until somebody could come and have a look, which I don't know. I hope these dates are a misprint, but who can say? Because it's very possible that there was just a very dead man on the bar of an English pub for a few days. I'm okay with it. I mean... It's weird. I'm sure they had some drinks on him. I know. It's not the weirdest thing that's happened in an English pub. That's for damn sure. Definitely. <laughs> All right. So Smith surrenders willingly when the constable comes and he's taken into custody. The coroner's journey is held and they examine the facts of the case and they come back with a verdict of willful murder by Smith. So he's committed to Newgate Prison until his trial. I've got some photographs of Newgate to show you all. It's just as grim as you're imagining. Meanwhile, two days after the murder of Thomas Millwood, a local man, a shoemaker by the name of John Graham, publicly admits to being the Hammersmith ghost. So 
Great. Graham claimed that some of his apprentices at work had been telling his children ghost stories and scaring them, and so he thought he'd give them a taste of their own medicine. Mm -hmm. So unlike Austrian or German parents who love to install eternal terror in their children's hearts. <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> so, exactly. But this didn't explain the assaults on innocent women. And actually, I have a theory that there was Graham scaring the boys, but possibly there was some kind of other local perv, maybe using the ghost stories as an easy way to sexually assault some of the local women. And I love that you had the same idea when I first mentioned it early on. And if that's the case... It could also possibly why there are so many accounts of women, especially dying, losing pregnancies, that sort of thing. And I know I have a dark mind, but I just feel like it's a really creepy aspect of this whole story, uh, if you think about it. And I really do think that rape or really any kind of sexual assault, but especially rape, would have been completely covered up at that time if anything like that had happened. You know, like the woman who was found on the ground hours after being attacked. It's just like, I don't like it. No, I totally agree. As soon as you mentioned the woman being attacked and losing consciousness, that's what I thought immediately. Mm -hmm. I'm pretty certain that your theory is absolutely correct. And I mean, women died. I don't even want to imagine what happened to them. Yeah, and I wonder how many of them might have also, you know, taken their own lives because of mm -hmm. what happened, right? Because it's something women don't talk about today. Yeah. Today. Imagine back then, yeah. Imagine back then. So that's the part of this that just really gives me the shivers. Mm. I, I don't like it. Do we know what happened to Graham? Yeah, I don't think anything really ever came of it. So he was granted bail and he got out of jail and then there just isn't really anything else. I don't think they bothered charging him. But let's talk about the trial now. So nobody had witnessed the shooting and the burden is more on the prosecution and Smith pleads self-defense. So there are a lot of people, I think there were 12 witnesses called and they all speak to Smith's good character. At the trial, Anne testifies what I had quoted before, that was her testimony. But she also says that she heard everything and she insisted that Smith demanded to know who her brother was, but then shot him before he'd even had time to answer. It sounds like he panicked, really, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. As for Smith, he says at the trial that he's very sorry for what happened and he did not believe it was a ghost, but he did genuinely fear for his life when he fired the gun. Here is his transcript. Quote, my lord, I went out with a good intention, and when this unhappy affair took place, I did not know what I did. Speaking to the deceased twice, and he not answering, I was so much agitated, I did not know what I did. I solemnly declare my innocence, and that I had no intention to take away the life of the unfortunate deceased, or any other man, whatever." End quote. So testimony was given that he was distraught when he realized he'd killed someone and he was completely cooperative when he was arrested. Some of the most important evidence, in my opinion, though, is that of Thomas's mother-in-law, Mrs. Fulbrook, who, I don't know, she seems savage as fuck to me, but also fair enough. So this is her testimony given about her murdered son-in-law. So she's sworn in and they ascertain that they're related by marriage and Thomas and her daughter lived with her. And then they ask if she's aware of the Hammersmith ghost and she says she is. And so then they ask, question, quote, in consequence of what you heard about it, did you ever say anything to the deceased about the dress he wore? So basically he's saying, hey, since you knew about this ghost issue, did you ever think to mention he's wearing all white? Could be 
an issue. Exactly. And she responds, quote, On Saturday evening, he and I were at home, for he lived with me. He said he had frightened two ladies and a gentleman who were coming along the terrace in a carriage. For that man said, he dared to say, there goes the ghost. That he said, he was no more a ghost than he was, and asked him, using a bad word, did he want a punch <laughs> to the head? I begged of him to change his dress. Thomas, says I, as there is a piece of work about the ghost, and your clothes look white, pray, do put on your great coat that you may not run into any danger. I don't know what answer he made. He said he wished the ghost was catched, or something of that sort. That's not really unreasonable of her. It's not. I mean, it's not. We weren't there. It's Maybe I'm being overly critical of her. Maybe Thomas was just a stubborn jerk. We'll never know. But the jury deliberated for about 45 minutes, and they came back with a verdict of manslaughter. But the judge was like, oh, dear. So sorry. You're actually going to have to decide if he's guilty of murder or acquit him. There's nothing about this case that would make him eligible for manslaughter. What? Yeah, I think it's because he did go out with a gun looking to take care of the ghost, right? So... That's a bummer for everyone involved. And so they get back to deliberating. And ultimately, they come back with a verdict of guilty of murder. And so he's sentenced to hanging and worse dissection. And so he just falls to the ground sobbing. Dissection. So after he was hanged, they would then give the body to a surgeon who would dissect the body. And sometimes they would even sell tickets for people to watch the dissection. Yeah. And the dissection was often the part that upset people that were sentenced to it, even more than death itself. And since you could be hanged for lots of things, uh, judges felt like adding dissection was the real deterrent. Mm. But the judge did promise to send this case to the king because he knew there was actually a lot of public support for Smith. And sure enough, the king commuted the sentence to a year of hard labor. And then he ended up getting a full pardon and is released on July 14th of 1804. So he spent about seven months in jail. Now, the reason I talked about this trial is because it was kind of an important case. It made it really glaringly obvious that there was a flaw in the laws of the time. There wasn't really any defense available to someone who was trying to do the right thing, but basically misunderstood a situation and as a result caused harm or death. So this case was brought up a number of times in trials over the following years. Believe it or not, it wasn't until 1984 that the issue was finally settled from a legal perspective. So there was a man on a bus when he witnessed another man chasing a kid, catching him, and dragging him along the road. The kid was yelling for help, and so the man witnessing this got off the bus and ran to the aid of the kid that he thought was being kidnapped. The guy holding the kid claimed to be a cop, but when bus guy asked to see a badge, the guy holding the kid didn't have one, and so the man from the bus punches him a few times, thinking that he was stopping a kidnapper. And he was subsequently charged with assault, because what he hadn't seen was the kid mugging an old lady and taking off. He only saw the man chasing him down and trying to hold on to him for the cops. So, because he had repeatedly punched another innocent person, trying to help a kid he mistakenly thought was a victim, he was a arrested and convicted of assault. But when he appealed, I'm actually going to read you this bit from Martin Bagley's excellent article on the Hammersmith Ghost Murder on crimemagazine.com, their article. I'll link to it in our sources. So Martin says, quote, the appeal was successful and it was established that if an individual believed mistakenly that force was necessary to protect him 
or herself or to prevent a crime being committed, and so long as that belief was reasonably held and the prosecution could not prove otherwise, no crime could be said to have taken place. This principle was subsequently written into law, and after 180 years, the Hammersmith ghost was finally laid to rest. End quote. Or was it? Not if you ask the Ghost Club, which I would really like to belong to. It was co-founded in 1862 by one Mr. Charles Dickens, and they have occasionally met at the Black Lion Pub. I really want in. I want to join this Ghost Club. So <laughs> the Black Lion Pub, they display a plaque marking the Hammersmith Ghost Murder, and also they have a report from the Times from January of 1804. And so if you think that was all the end of the story, the question now becomes, did the fake Hammersmith ghost cause a real Hammersmith ghost? Because it seems possible that Thomas haunts the pub where his body lay for, well, actually anywhere from a few hours to a few days. Who can say? According to an article from Saturday, the 3rd of January, 2004, on the BBC News page, the landlord of the Black Lion pub, Kevin Sheehy, said, quote, We do have some strange going on in the pub. The chef lives upstairs and has been woken up half a dozen times by someone speaking his name, but there was no one there. Locals say the ghost returns to Hammersmith Churchyard every 50 years. Its last visit was July 1955, end quote. I'm not 100% sure about that math, and when I was making my notes, I was definitely too high to figure it out, but <laughs> I'm absolutely going to visit the Black Lion Pub the next time I'm in London, and if you are listening to this, my cousins, Amy, anyone out there listening in England, in London, if you go, please take a picture of the plaque for me, would you? And I don't know, like, hashtag me? Is that how it works? Uh, yeah. That's how it works. Yeah, so that's it. That's the Hammersmith ghost murder story. <laughs> I really like this story. Thank you, Annie. It's not scary. Thank you for the two. You're welcome. I could, I could <laughs> listen to it. Yeah, I enjoyed it. It was really good. I didn't, I didn't know anything about this story before. Yeah, it's kind of a weird one. Like, it had a little bit of everything. Yeah, true. So even though it was not super scary and, and creepy today, I think we should still talk about something good that happened this week or something good that we want to recommend. Can I start? Yeah, please. So, okay, I think as it is a spooky month, I just want to recommend my favorite scary movie, which is obviously The Shining by one of my absolute idols, Stanley Kubrick. The only Stanley Kubrick movie that I can stand to watch. <laughs> I know, I know, we're such opposites. I forgive you. It's all right. <laughs> I still love you. I have to say, I hate horror movies that use jump scares to... Well, to scare people. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's super lazy. It's like a cheap orgasm. <laughs> like a cheap orgasm. I've never heard that one. <laughs> um, okay, there's a difference. There are cheap orgasms that like do the trick, but then after, I don't know, 10, 15 minutes, you're like, meh, not so satisfied anymore. Like the Chinese food of orgasms. <laughs> 15 minutes later, <laughs> yeah, you're hungry like again. That. And then there's the, there's the good orgasm that, you know, lasts you for two months. Okay, yes. Got mm -hmm. it. And mm -hmm. uh, a jump scare is just that, a cheap orgasm. It satisfies you for a few minutes and, yeah, yeah, it's cheap. But a movie, you know, that builds up the tension and that scares yes. you through that, through that build up, that is far superior in my opinion. And The Shining does that for me. Of course, a big part of that is simply Jack Nicholson because he is one scary man. Ah, oh, now I remember another horror movie that built up uh, tension extremely well was uh, Hereditary. That one was, it came out, I think, like 
two years ago. I watched it in cinema and the room was packed and still it got me so tense that there were moments when I just had to look away for a few seconds, you know, to relax a little bit. Mm. I highly recommend that one too, except maybe for the last five to three minutes. Oh, okay. I haven't heard of that one, but I will add it to the list. Are you excited for Dr. Sleep? I love you and McGregor. I am actually excited since you sent me the trailer. I love the little, you know, heads off to to Kubrick's Shining. So I'm definitely going to watch that one. Yes. I think there's a bunch of like little Easter eggs and things mm. in there. It's one of those movies where I almost want to read the trivia before I go to watch it, even though there might be spoilers. But I've read the book, so it's like, should be all right, you know. So I'm going to recommend the Agent Pendergast series of books by Douglas Preston and Lincoln Child. It starts with the book Relic, which was made into a, a movie that I'm not sure I've ever even seen. I think it's like mid-90s. And then the next book is Reliquary. But the series has a whole bunch of books in it now, at least a dozen, I think. And the, the character of Agent Pendergast is just really interesting. And the books are fun and weird and creepy. And I especially need to thank my husband, Paul, for this week. We have had some pretty crazy weather and I've had a migraine for about a week. I actually just got back from Botox. So I have a pinhead face, but he's just been, he's the best. He picks up all the slack and he always takes care of me. So thanks, honey. We love you. Yeah, we love you. We did talk about suicide a lot. So if you or someone you know needs help, you're going to find uh, helpful links and resources pinned to our Facebook group page. Speaking of our Facebook group, come join us. It's a closed group so that, you know, your mother-in-law, your boss can't see you talk about murder in depth. But we chat about cases and share memes and pictures of dogs. It's a, it's a fun place to be. We're also on Twitter. We're on Instagram. Before I forget it, please, if you want your ghost encounter story or paranormal story included in our Halloween episode, send us your story via email at freshhellpodcast at gmail.com. Other exciting things, we have a merch store now. That's right. Yeah, I keep asking you to add things with the logo on so I can buy them. Then I'm going to foist them on my family and make them wear them and use them out in public. <laughs> I'm so lame, but I just, I don't even, I give zero fucks. Plus, a portion of any of the money that we make from that is going to charities that will help the people that are most impacted by the sorts of stories that we cover, and then the rest is going right back into this podcast, because we spend money, <laughs> our yeah. own money, to, to do this. Um, so, yeah, do we have a link to the merch? Uh, yes, you will find the link to our merch store on our webpage, which is www.freshhellpodcast.com, and you're going to find it on all our social media outlets. And please, if you enjoyed this episode, please do take just a moment to review us on iTunes if you can. It does help other listeners find us. Please tell your dogs we say hi. Yeah, and we know we know your cats really. They don't they don't care at all. No, they don't. Mm, they really not one bit. You especially tell Jam and Leela I love them. And uh as always, if you are going through hell, keep going. Tschüss. Bye. 